Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, and welcome to Mets 360 here on Blog Talk Radio. I'm your host, Brian Jura, and I'm very pleased to welcome back to the uh, program fantasy baseball expert and friend of the show, Tim McLeod. Tim, thanks for joining us tonight. Thanks for having me back, Brian. Always a pleasure to talk some ball with you. All right, well, let's get uh, right to it. One of the things that I've been uh, thinking about here lately is uh, pitch counts. And uh, we, we seem to have developed that uh, 100 pitch is, uh, is some kind of magic barrier that teams are very hesitant to, to surpass. And I just want to know what your thoughts on how MLB clubs use pitch counts. Well, I, I, I think that 100, 100 mark, uh, depending on the individual and the pitches he's specifically throwing, I, I don't have any problems with that 100 uh, with that 100. Uh, pitch count uh, as sort of a, a barrier, but I think a lot depends on the individual pitcher and what they happen to be throwing. You catch somebody that throws a lot of sliders, well, maybe 90-95, back it off a little bit. You get a, a strong fastball pitcher who's got a history of going deep into games, yeah, give them a little bit more work. Uh, I think a lot just has to be tailored to the specific individual, but as a general statement, 100 to 110 pitches works fine for me. Now, one of the things that that gets frustrating for me is I, I feel like it, it's it's kind of a, a never-ending cycle because you have to build up in order to be able to consistently throw 105, 110, 115, whatever whatever number that that you'd like. But if you constantly take guys out when they reach 91 or 93 pitches, how are they ever going to build up the stamina to throw 115? Well, that's, that's a very good point. And you, you take a look at pitchers like Trevor Bauer, who throws probably 15 different pitches, if you asked him. Uh, uh, it's nothing for him to go 120 in. And, you know, I can understand when you start looking at 20-year-olds like Soraka, do you want to give them 135 uh, 35 pitches? I, I say no. They're still growing some of these kids. But, uh, sometimes I, I think it's good to give them a, a bit more work, Brian. I agree with you. Well, that's no fun when you agree. So let's move on to, to the next question see if I can uh, get a little uh, controversy here. Um, we're in the beginning of May, and at what point uh, do we reach the, that part of the season where we think that certain teams are maybe either a little bit better or a little bit worse than what we thought? Um, you know, I'm, I have a vested interest in the, the National League East. So, uh, for example, should we think that the Nationals are still the favorites to win in the National League East? Yeah, I I think they're definitely one of one of a couple of teams that you can consider as favorites. I, I guess one of the, one of the problems I have, Brian, is when you look at the standings today. You look at the AL East. You got Boston, the Yankees up top. No surprise. In the Central, Cleveland's in first. In the West. Houston, Seattle, and the Angels. Uh, the only division where there's really any surprises 
uh, in baseball right now would be in the NL East, and that would be the Atlanta Braves. So uh, a, a lot of, you know, when you start talking about what, what's a surprise, uh, I, I don't think there's a whole lot of surprises this year. I, I think ex- except for the NL East, uh, things are going just about according to preseason plan. And in the NL East, there's, uh, I really like the Braves and the Phillies, young teams uh, heading in heading in the right direction. But I don't think, think they're going to catch uh, Washington this year, uh, Bryce. Now, what about in the NL West? I think before the season started, everyone would have pegged the Dodgers as the team to beat. And yet, um, due to injuries, we see the Dodgers scuffling and we see uh, Arizona being what appears at, at first glance or right now to be the team to beat out West. Isn't that a little bit of a surprise? Um, the slow start is, but I think if you start projecting forward a bit, a little bit, you know, Arizona's the uh, they've lost two very, very important parts uh, of their rotation and Tyon Walker to Tommy John and Robbie Ray is out for probably four to six weeks. Uh, they're going to come back to the pack. Colorado's starting pitching other than John Gray hasn't been what I would consider to be dominant. And I don't think it will be. The giants are in third right now, but they just lost uh, Johnny Cueto for, I don't know how long, the Dodgers have still have, in my opinion, the best pitching in that division. And when they get Turner back and Forsythe and Puig, uh, I think they'll climb up the ranks. All right. Well, uh, sticking with the, the National League uh, in the just-concluded month of uh, April, NL hitters uh, had a, a 706 OPS. And if we compare that to what happened a year ago, it was 738. So uh, that that seems to me a, a fairly significant drop. And I guess uh, what I'm looking to hear from you is, do you think this is a, a slowdown in overall offense, or do you think this is more due to the weather than anything else? I, I think I'm going to sit back for now, Brian, and blame this one on the weather. You know, you look at a, you look at some of those outings that teams like I don't know the, the one game in Chicago is in the middle of a snowstorm. Uh, <laughs> you know. I know that the game Quintana got one game got beat up really bad. I don't even know how he was throwing out there. Uh, uh, and again, that doesn't do anything with the OPS, but I'm going to blame it on the weather for now and reevaluate come the end of May. Uh, the month of April wasn't a good month weather-wise. No, it, it, it certainly featured uh, cold weather through, throughout much of, of the nation, but it, it just does seem that that 30-something, 30 32 points of, of OPS is, is a fairly significant drop-off. You know, and it's hard for me to remember what the weather was yesterday, so I'm not going to pretend to know what it was like for the entire USA in uh, April of 2017, but um, April's always cold, isn't it? Yeah, that well, where I I live, so is May and June, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> um, when when you start looking at the OPS numbers, the other thing is, you know, hey, there's a lot of swing and miss in our game, and maybe there just was a more miss and swing. And and, and based on those stats, I, I think that's a fair assumption. Now, will it continue? Who knows. Now, you just brought up an, an interesting point about all of the, the swings and misses that we have in the game right now, and that brings to mind Josh Hader, the, the reliever for the Milwaukee, who's just been absolutely incredible. He's pitched uh, 18 innings coming into tonight and has 39 strikeouts. 
which is, uh, I don't know, that's incredible. I don't know if there's any other word that you can <laughs> think about. And and I think that most people would agree with that statement. And yet, yeah. at the same time, while we're celebrating the accomplishment of Josh Hader, I, I feel like there's a lot of hand-wringing about the, the three true outcome nature of, of the game. So I, my question is, why... Why is it okay for the individual, but not on a on a larger basis, either game uh, or team wide basis, for this type of uh, event to occur? Well, I think Josh Hader, for one, is is an exception to the rule, but uh, I don't have any problems if that if that is the case on a team wide or or on a league wide basis. If the biggest concern it says to me when I see the strikeout numbers going up and up and up is the fact that we got a lot of ball players out there that don't understand and can control the strike zone. And I think over the next five to 10 years, uh, the ability to take a walk, to get on base and to determine the difference between a ball and strike, I think it's going to start counting even more per se than it has up until now. And, uh, I think the game is going to. I think the game's going to change a little bit, Brian. Uh, you know, the, the 240, 250 strikeout Miguel Sano might have trouble finding a job in a few years. You know, it's really interesting to to watch the the ebb and the flow and the pendulum swing back and forth. And I keep waiting to see a, a new generation of hitters come up, better equipped to deal with the shift. And you know, maybe they can't. Uh, just uh, be the the ultimate uh, Rod Carew type of bat control, but you would think that they'd be able to to lay down a bunt down the third base side and 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 I don't know you you probably watch more of the the league as a whole than I do, but from what I see, I, I just haven't seen it yet. Uh, is that unrealistic of me to expect hitters to you know maybe uh, adjust what they've been doing all their life to all of a sudden drop down a bunt down the third base line? Well, I, I think it all boils down to, is it a team game or an individual game? And uh, having a guy like, uh, here's a prime example, say Albert Pujols or Kendrys Morales, a, a big bopper, you're expecting 30, 30, 40 home runs out of these guys or whatever, uh, to sacrifice themselves and drop a bunt down the third base line. I, I think it's something that should happen more often, and I, and I think we will see more of it in the future. The easiest way to beat the shift is, as you said, drop one down third base. I think I saw, I've seen Morales do it uh, once or twice this year, and why not trot down to first base and stand there? Hey, you can't you can't score until you get to first base. Now, this may be an odd time to to ask this, but here we have a, a month of the, of the season under our belts, and do you? Um, when you look back at the free agent contracts that were were signed in the off season, do you see any team having uh, buyer's remorse already? Well, when I look at the fact that the Chicago Cubs could have probably signed Jake Arrieta and had him back in the fold, and decided, and this is this is blasphemy on my behalf because I'm a big supporter of the Japanese game and Japanese players, but. You Darvish with his current ERA of six, 157 whip, and only twice going longer than five innings. Uh, that's got a sting in Chicago. Uh, they're on the hook for 101 million over the next five years, and uh, so far they have got very, very little bang for their buck from you Darvish. I think there'd have to be some regret there, right, right about now, uh, Brian. 
Darvish was certainly the guy that I had in, in mind when I was formulating that question. And to me, uh, the other half of the equation, the one that you brought up, Jake Arrieta and how they, they didn't come to terms with him, the contract that he right. signed is, is fascinating. And I don't remember all of the details. And it, it seems like it could be anywhere from a one- to a five-year contract, depending upon who picks up the, the options that are available to him. But uh, I think the middle ground is uh, three years and $75 million, which seems like um, a, a decent contract, not a great contract, not an awful one, but a decent one for somebody with a pitcher like Arietta's um, pedigree. Uh, I know he had a rough beginning to 2017, but he seemed to right the ship in the second half of the year, and mm-hmm. the home runs that were killing him early weren't a factor. And uh, before his his last start, he was doing really good this year. And and just really interesting, you know, we were talking before about the pendulum swinging back and forth. And, you know, that may be a new new pendulum swing in how we see contracts instead of just a a basic this is for X amount of years or X plus an option where both sides kind of have an option to, to, to protect themselves. Well, yeah, when you start looking at, at players, uh, Brian, uh, say after the age of 32, you know, Chris Davis, uh, Baltimore's gonna, gonna rue the day that they signed him to that deal for a <laughs> long time. It's, you know, there's, there's a lot of risk involved. The game is getting younger. We're seeing younger players. Well, you know, we saw Soraka pitching as a 20, 20 year old and pitching very, very well just, uh, yesterday. And, you know, the game is getting younger for teams to be looking at committing on five, six, seven, eight year deals, players 32 and up. Uh, there's a lot of risk there. And I think teams are starting to, to not only realize it, but they're wanting some sort of uh, balance in those deals. And the older player is simply not going to get those big, huge uh, contracts. Now, you mentioned Chris Davis, which brings to to mind Baltimore, and they're one of the uh, six teams that are currently on pace to lose 100 games. And, uh, you know, I didn't go back and and check, but certainly we haven't seen anything like that recently. It just seems like a lot to me. And do you think that uh, having a bunch of teams get triple digits and losses, do you think that's going to be a new normal? Yeah, I, I I think what what we're seeing is that uh, teams that aren't contending, they're they're not going to rush out to sign free agents or you know if they're if you're in rebuilding mode and and you can't compete this year and you're looking towards the future, yeah, I, I think you're going to see basically uh, uh, two groups of uh, two groups of teams, the haves and the have-nots wanting to be the haves. And uh, I I think what you're going to see is more of what we're seeing this year. Teams that are rebuilding are going to, in fact, rebuild. They're going to sell off parts, and they're going to try and build through their uh, through the draft and trades. And, yeah, I, whether it's good for the game is, is a different question, but I think we're going to see more of it. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised heading into next year to see – seven, eight, nine teams basically out of the race before the season starts. Now, for a long time, the Pittsburgh Pirates, I think it was somewhere about 20 consecutive years, they finished under 500. 
And I think one of the uh, things that one of the jokes that developed along the way was that they had an annual drive for 75 where they signed a bunch of third and fourth tier free agents that had name value for trying to, to, to reach 75 wins. And it seems like we don't have any team doing that. And I guess the team that jumps immediately to mind is the Cincinnati Reds, who I think they may have signed a relief pitcher or two, but essentially sat on their hands and did nothing all year long and then fired their manager after they, they got off to such a, a dismal start. And, and they're certainly one of the teams that, that's on pace for 100 losses. So if, if you're a fan of the Cincinnati Reds, I mean, are you okay with that? Well, if you're a fan of the Cincinnati Reds, uh, you've got you've got to look at that team and say, do we want to finish third for the next five years, or we do we want to do an overhaul, get some kids into the system, and try and have a true competitive team three to four years down the road? And uh, I, I think if you look at the big picture, I think it's the right thing to do. My problem. When, when I look at, at teams, and, and here's a comparison for you, Brian, Pittsburgh, okay? You go back a couple of years ago, they had a, an amazing stash of young talent sitting there. They were a player or two short and ended up in a wild card, ended up losing a couple of years. But they could have had a player like David Price a couple of years ago by parting with some of the, their young talent, and they didn't do it. Now, compare that to, say, this year's Angels, who went out and they signed Otani, but they also signed Cozart, uh, got a hold of Ian Kinsler, and even though they they weren't in a position uh, to promote internally because their minor league system wasn't that strong, they still found a way to add to their core and build a competitive team. And my problem is not so much with teams rebuilding. My problem is with teams not making that final push when they're in a position to be competitive. And I think that's just wrong. And if I was a fan of the pirates, I'd be livid because they had a window of opportunity and they refused to do anything about it. That that's wrong. Yeah, I, I agree with you completely there. I, I think the the one thing that, that maybe is a little bit tougher than we want to give credit for is knowing exactly when that moment is to strike. And, and I think about a team like the Phillies, they came into uh-huh. the season, and I don't think anybody was expecting them to be contenders for uh, a playoff spot. But they went out and they signed a, a, a Santana and they signed an, an Arietta. And then who knows? Washington gets some injuries, and and you know maybe they're right in the thick of the things for the playoff race. So what looked like a a, a mistake maybe in uh, in December or January now is like uh, you, you never know. So w- where do you draw that line yes. if, if you're a GM? Yeah, I, I like what Philly has done. As a matter of fact, Philly was my long shot uh, prediction to end up in the World Series this year. And that was made back in back at the beginning of March, Brian. Uh, I, I like the young talent, and I like the fact that they went out and acquired some, uh, some existing talent to add to that young group. And uh, I think it's a very smart move, and the fans in Philly should be very, very excited right about now. To me, we have uh, an interesting thing where it, it seemed that, that coming into this year, there were, there were clearly in the National League two teams who weren't trying to compete, and that was the, the Marlins and the Reds. And then maybe it wasn't as, quite as clear-cut in, in the AL, 
but you had a team like the White Sox, which had already stripped everything down. There wasn't really much left to sell off there in, in Chicago. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I don't know if there was any teams that were necessarily on on the complete down arrow trend. I mean, maybe they already hit bottom or were, were darn close enough near it. And I just wonder when we come to the to deadline this year, the trade deadline, how is that going to be when teams – you know, there's not a whole lot of teams trying to, to sell off players or having players worthwhile to sell off. Do you think that uh, we're going to see a, a, an unusual trade market because of that this year at the deadline? Yeah, I, I think it could be fairly unique. And, you know, one of the, you know, the, the trade targets that uh, the name has been bounced around simply because Miami has moved everybody else pretty well of sub- substance is JT Real Muto. And, you know, there's, I can't see anybody, per se, wanting to pass on Real Muto, but how much are they going to, you know, Boston's relatively happy with their catching. The Yankees have Sanchez. You know, Cleveland's in, in fairly good shape. If you go through the roster of contending playoff teams right now, there's not that many teams that I can see going out and paying for uh, Real Muto. One, one of those teams is your New York Mets, and... Uh, unless they find some pitching pretty quick, will they even be looking at Real Muto? Now, granted, you're looking at uh, you're looking at a player who's being paid 2.9 mil this year with two years of arbitration eligibility left. So he'd, he'd be a great fit in New York, right? Well, there's certainly been a, a ton of virtual ink spent on Real Muto, and and uh, the the fact that the the Mets have a, a gaping hole at backstop right now, and it certainly makes a lot of sense just from a from a theoretical point of view. But the Marlins mm-hmm. are kind of in the driver's seat right now. He's he's not so expensive that they have to trade him, and and they can exactly. take their time. I mean, if they don't get the offer that they want right now, I mean, they have no problem waiting another month or two or even three. So uh, they're in the driver's seat. But putting that aside for a second. To me, Riomuto is is an interesting case because he's been very good the the last two years, but I don't think that I would put him in like a, a Buster Posey a, elite catcher uh, viewpoint. So, what what do you think is a, a fair trade return for uh, a guy like Riomuto? And and you don't have to talk about any specific players; you can just talk in in general terms. What, what do you think is a, a realistic? Um, uh, trade proposal for him, something that that would be satisfactory to both sides. Well, I think when you look at Real Muto and you look at catching as a whole, there aren't a, very many catchers out there that have the potential to post his offensive numbers. I would have him ranked offensively as a probably, definitely a top five, might even be as high as number number four on the catching ranks. There's there's not that much out there. And he's 27, so I, I think he's young enough that we can expect that production to, to continue. And um, if, if, I was, if I was, say, the New York Mets uh, and looking at a deal, I would want either one of Peterson or Dunn plus uh, Nito for him. How's that? Well, um, you know, I, I think that that's certainly uh, realistic. I think that the, the Marlins should be looking to stockpile pitchers, and uh, Peterson is mm-hmm. probably the most attractive pitcher that the, the Mets have in their farm system now. 
So um, you're, you're saying that you think that uh, two pitchers and uh, um, some catcher that they can throw in there to replace him is, is pretty much yeah, what, what you think would be fair. Yeah, at, at least I would want at least one top pitching prospect. Uh, for, a, for a catcher that I will own for the next three years, yeah, I would definitely want, uh, like I said, a, a Peterson and and somebody else, and Nito would make sense because he would fit into their system and they could develop him as a catcher and have him for the next five to ten years, right? There you go. Um, uh, and. The, the Mets, I guess, have a, uh, a plethora of uh, backstops who are probably good enough to reach the majors, and but not really good enough to be full-time starters. So if they didn't like Nito, they could take Ploiecki or Patrick Mazzico or a couple other guys that they have in the high minors. Well, we've reached the uh, crazy prediction uh, time in the show. Um, I'll give you a crazy prediction, or what I think is a crazy prediction, and I'll ask you to comment on it and then uh, ask you to give me one of your own. Are you ready? Ready to go, Brian. Fire away. All right, so my crazy prediction is last year, among relievers who did not make a start, uh, Yusmero Pettit led the way with 87 and a third innings pitched. So my crazy prediction is that this year we will see 20 relievers surpass that innings pitch total, including a couple that will exceed 100 innings pitched, which hasn't been done since 2006. So what do you think? Is that crazy? No, that's not crazy at all. Our game no. is shifting. Our game is shifting, Brian, to a a higher higher relief pitching component, and we're we're seeing even closers going blasphemy as it is going two innings. Can you imagine that? A, a closer going two innings almost unheard of. Yeah, I, I can I can see I can see a fairly high number of pitchers. Uh, Breaking the hundred uh, inning mark this year, and uh, no, I don't. I don't think that's crazy at all. I think that's perfectly sane. Wow! Wow! Shot me down. All right, show me what a crazy prediction is like. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't think this one's all that crazy, but I, I think I think some of your listeners might think so. But Joey Gallo leads all of Major League Baseball in home runs this year with sixty-three. And finishes second to Mike Trout, who goes 54, with, hits 54 home runs and steals 25 bases. Joey Gallo, your home run leader in Major League Baseball. Yeah, you know, um, uh, if he hits the ball 70 times, uh, 63 homers would be in play. So um, I'm going to be stingy. <laughs> After you shot down mine, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to give you the crazy stamp. So we, we both took a, a swing and a miss this year. <laughs> All right, well, uh, talking about... Oh, there's always next about, year, Brian, always next year. <laughs> there you go. Talking about things that maybe didn't work out the way that the, the, their originators thought, let's talk about the mound re- visit rule. Uh, and uh, the powers that be at MLB thought that this would uh, shave some time off the, the games. So what impact do you think of it that this new rule has had uh, on the game so far? Um, I think it's had very little, to be honest with you. I... I, I haven't seen a lot of panic as we get into later the latter innings. Uh, maybe it sped up the game a little bit, but you know I think uh, Major League Baseball could look at their umpiring crew, and if they want to speed the game up, they could have uh, less uh, 
controversy uh, between umpires and uh, and players, and that might knock a few minutes off each game. Like, you know, somebody put a muzzle on C.B. Buckner, uh, for instance, and, you know, they could probably meet their time requirements just by doing that, uh, Brian. <laughs> well, if, if, if we're going to uh, um, uh, look at the umpires as a source of uh, uh, the slow play, let's look at the umpires as just as far as being competent. And uh, I think we could all name uh, three or four umpires that we would be better off if they were no longer umping in uh, in the major leagues. But uh, yeah, I think that uh, it's done very little for time of play. But I think that it it it's forced. Uh, I, I think teams are are overreacting to it, and they're not going out and visiting the pitcher when he's struggling in the early innings when they probably should. So I think it had has had unintended. Uh, consequences, and I don't think mm. that it's been good for the game at all. Yeah, I, you know, I, you, the game is what it is. I, I, I'm a strong believer that uh, Mr. Manford wants to establish his legacy uh, in, in in the game, and uh, I think maybe he's going about it the wrong way, Brian. Uh, you know, removing the shift. He was talking about that, and now some of the things being put into play. He wants to put a stamp on the game, but I think there are better ways to approach it than the uh, various approaches that he has both mentioned and implemented to date. Well, we have about a uh, a minute remaining, and I want to uh, ask you about the uh, circle back to Baltimore, which we were talking about earlier. And um, they're they're playing lousy as a team, but Manny Machado is, is playing awesome, and he's an impending free agent, as you know. And uh, which teams do you think are are most likely to pull the trigger on a blockbuster for him? Um, on a blockbuster, if I had to pick one team that might be looking at something like that, I'm going to go with the Braves. And you know what? If the Braves are in the race mid-July and they're sitting in a good position, Manny Machado at third base uh, as a rental, uh, that would be awful impressive. And and the Braves have enough uh, talent in their minor league system. They could probably do something that would satisfy Mr. Angelos. Well, there you have it. Tim, thanks so much for for joining us. The uh, 30 minutes just flew by. Thanks so much, Brian. It's always a pleasure talking baseball with you. And all the best to you and your Mets over the balance of 2018. Oh, we're going to need it after tonight. Well, um, please tune in and uh, listen to us again next Wednesday night at 11 o'clock Eastern when uh, Mets 360 writer Dalton Allison joins us. Until then, good night, everyone, and goodbye.